Auto Code, the Australian Computer Museum Society podcast. Season 1, Episode 6. I'm Riley Tipton Perry. We're going to start off with some great news. The ACMS has a fresh new board, comprising myself as Secretary, Joe Lemura as Treasurer, Adrian Franulovich as Vice President, and, after a long hiatus of a quarter of a century, Mr. Graham Phillipson is back in the presidential seat. We've also got a new location, which is close to Sydney City in Croydon. More details to come soon. Look, we've set up a GoFundMe to help to make it all happen. If you want to help, and please do, then go to GoFundMe.com and search for Help Fit Out the Australian Computer Museum. Today's interview is part one of a two-part set of interviews with the great Roger Keating of Strategic Studies Group, or SSG for short. We're also joined by Michael Mulhern, himself a well-known figure in both retro computing and podcasting circles. You may know him from the Retro Computing Roundtable podcast. Today's episode centers around Roger and Michael's early adventures with the Apple II, a machine of which we all have very fond memories. In part two, released later, we'll talk with Roger again about SSG specifically. Today's mystery object is an Apple computer, released on January 19, 1983. Sorry, those are all the clues I'm giving you. Anyway, here's Roger and Michael. Hi, Michael Mulhern and Roger Keating. What was the first time you came into contact with an Apple computer? And how do you remember this first device? And what was different about it? We'll start with you, Roger. Well, I'll just preface it by saying that through my life, I've always looked for the next best improvement on the computer scene, whether whether in software or hardware. This was the important thing to me. So starting out, machines had threaded copy memory, so it was measured in very small kilobytes and was very expensive. And then in the 70s, we moved over to circuit boards where speed and capacity started to increase. And then during the late 70s, or getting into the mid to late 70s, this thing, a magic thing called a 6502 processor was developed and suddenly hit the scene. When I saw the first Apple II, I, I was amazed. I believe it was at Computerland. I liked the fact that you could just pick it up and put it, take it anywhere with you. It just looked as if it was a magic device compared to anything I'd ever had before. Uh, in other words, I wanted one. Uh, as I it was, it was very expensive, about $5,000 for a tape-driven Apple II. Uh, so I got the school I was working at at the time to buy one, <laughs> convincing them by some mechanism. I was pretty insistent to to get a copy of the, this Apple II, and it arrived sans manuals, sans about anything like knowledge. And then I settled in and started to look at what a 1 megahertz 64K machine was capable of doing. And Michael? 
<laughs> well, my first exposure was was um, at university in 1981. I just finished high school, and for me, any computer was something that you saw on TV or in the movies with the the spinning tape um, going back and forth. And to me, that was computers. And then I uh, went to Griffith University to do a Bachelor of Science in Environmental Studies, of all things, and uh, went up to the computer lab because I uh, went with a friend who said, hey, they've got some uh, Apple computers upstairs. And this intrigued me. And I uh, went in there and that was basically a tutorial room with, I think at that stage, 24 Apple II Euro Pluses, uh, each with twin disk drives. So I missed out on the, the joys of uh, tape. And a lovely little 10-inch CRT monitor. The computer club president was there and he said, oh, yes, yes, we can teach you how to use these and do programming. Weeks went by, nothing happened out of that. So I went to the library, took out all the manuals that they had in there for the computer and uh, taught myself how to use it, how to uh, break uh, open the programs, looked at how the programming was done and thought, oh, that's simple and uh, got into it from there and ended up writing uh, utilities and tutorial packages for some of the professors of the various schools at the university. You know, I hadn't even got into my first year of university and I was already making money uh, writing programs. I, th I thought it was uh, fantastic. But uh, yeah, I really love those uh, old Apple II Euro Pluses with their crackly power supply switches when you turn them on and thought it was amazing when they hooked in the uh, network cabling to it back to a massive 10 megabyte um, hard drive that was shared. So I got, I got my account on there, which was better than uh, keep using those five and a quarter inch floppies that uh, every time there was a failure, you'd run it through a utility to mask the bad sector. And you know, you'd have 140K on a floppy disk, but you were luck lucky to have 80K of it usable. We just couldn't afford the uh, $10, $15 for a single floppy disk. Roger and Michael, what was innovative about these early Apple devices? How were they different? The joys of tape drives were something I never, ever want to go back to, just as I know. <laughs> they, they... Oh, I agree. I've, 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 I'm into retro computing collecting as a hobby, and... Uh, the first, I always dread that I've got to sort of see if I can get a machine running uh, with, with a tape. And uh, there are many other things that are available now other than tape. And yes, <laughs> I don't want to relive the experience I gratefully missed out on. But just to answer your question then, uh, when I, whenever I've seen a new innovative device, and there's been many, it literally produces an amazing experience. I mean, it is... Uh, a joy to behold. Uh, it's happened a number of times, not as many as I would really like, but the Apple II was one of these times. You just see in that moment what could be possible, not what is there now, but you see that by using this machine, you could be creating something that has never been done before. And it just, you don't know what that is, but you got you just want to try and that's how I felt when I looked at the Apple II. I thought that essentially here was a machine that could do so much. If anyone ever said what that would be, I really couldn't answer them. Um, I had the same experience with a, a machine that Apple put out called the Lisa. 
I had SSG immediately buy one. It handled all of our the, the uh, things that SSG was involved in, printing, um, various aspects to it. It was a brilliant machine that Apple also bought out. Unfortunately, that one was just so far ahead of the curve, no one could understand it. And essentially, they put that into the rubbish dump. Um, it came back in a very minor form with the Macintosh. But it shows that innovation in its own right isn't what, what, what makes it. You could see a magnificent thing today and around you uh, others are looking at it and wondering, you know, why, what does it do? And you can't explain because it's the creation, the uh, artistry, if you like, that's important. the important thing. It took, uh, basically with the Lisa, about five years to understand that a major change was occurring in computing. It took that long before people realised the mouse was actually worth having. With the Apple II, what I did like about it, everything was accessible. Seven slots at the back you could plug anything into. What they were, well, that was for the engineers to come up with something that you could buy. So you kept checking on what other things you could plug into the back of your Apple II to make it more powerful. It had 64K of memory, which basically was 48K if you didn't know how to use it properly. Um, and you could use everything in it if you knew how or if you wanted to use it in education, it was easy to write programs for it to teach students. Being a teacher, I found that it would be a way of showing my students the future. I then went on to some extent with trying to, to, uh, to expound this idea uh, and I could take that further. Uh, but talking to individuals at Apple II computer shops was one of the main things I did in these days because you could see that same enthusiasm, what they were trying to do. And really it came down to what we're setting about creating. Yes, yeah, certainly. There was just so much potential. Uh, Michael, do you have a Lisa? No, I don't have a, a Lisa, uh, which is funny because uh, I've played with the Lisa emulators. I've uh, backed uh, several uh, Kickstarter programs regarding the Lisa, um, especially one by uh, David Greeling, who's uh, in the final throes of putting it together. But uh, my first exposure to that interface was when I had left university um, I, I'd, I'd say at this stage, I had indefinitely deferred from um, university and I was working in a Apple dealer in Brisbane. And uh, 84, when the uh, Macintosh came out, um, one landed on our uh, desk from the Melbourne head office. I played with it. And again, I, I could see the, the future. I was aware of the Lisa at this stage because of magazines and everything, but this was the first time I'd actually got to push a mouse around a GUI. And I thought, yeah, this is, this is the way it's going to go. But I had a decision to make. It was uh, I wanted to buy my own computer so I could either get an Apple II uh, with a dealer discount uh, or I could go with this Macintosh thing. And I ended up buying an Apple IIc because it had everything I needed all bundled together, good dealer discount price. And uh, I, I, I won't say I considered the Macintosh a flash in the pan, but even then I could see that the, it was struggling with its 128K. Um, 
I already was exposed to hard drive access, so I could see that it was that it struggled to push with uh, the 400k floppy disk, and uh, I saw the potential, but I needed something to write programs on because although I was working in a computer uh, dealer shop, I was still writing programs. I was still being paid to do it, and my market was basically 8-bit Apple II, uh, predominantly DOS, very little pro-DOS. So um, I went with the market forces and uh, stayed in the 8-bit world. But uh, uh, I even found the Apple II platform uh, in it, as uh, Roger said, it had seven slots. You could just pop the top if you didn't have your um, disk drives and monitors sitting on top and you could put in the extra, extra cards, extra things. So when we're at university, um, the 16K language cards all mysteriously migrated uh, to the back row of six computers where we were allowed to sit quietly and do our thing while the... Uh, the staff uh, taught uh, computer classes to the students and we were allowed to stay there, A, to be quiet and do our stuff and B, to um, pull the professor or the tutor um, out of a hole of their own digging if they um, went the wrong way. <laughs> but, uh, yes, it, it, it was a, the early 80s for me. It was such a revolutionary, innovative field and the way things were going, which is basically why I deferred from my university course um, and went into selling computers because I was you know, distracted by uh, writing programs uh, to the detriment of uh, some of my other courses. So I'm not a good example of uh, how university can uh, further your education. Computers furthered my education and university provided <laughs> the platform for the computers. So I suppose I... I should thank Griffith University for that. Uh, okay, so on to the next question. How were Apple devices used back then? Let's say prior to the Lisa in the, the very early 80s, say around 82, 83. To my knowledge, the one thing I really realised that if you look at a modern PC, a lot of the things on a PC were actually started in the early 80s. So, for example, word processors were on the Apple II. They were certainly not uh, like a modern word processor. Uh, I, I still remember them quite clearly, what they would do and how you would actually have to operate them. You almost needed a degree to, to actually get these things working properly. But the point was, if you were to do it any other way, it took a lot longer and it was a lot less effective. There were some actually very early um, Excel-type programs. VisiCalc came out during that time. Business programs were developed and used in some shops. I always remember a time going to a shop in Sydney to deal with a corrupt disk that had not been backed up, and the owner had lost a week's worth of data, and he was very upset. So I actually accessed the disk, cured the problem, and the owner almost kissed me for rescuing this particular disk. 
Yeah, I know exactly what you mean because I've been in exactly the same situation where people had just used that one floppy disk one time too many and uh, you'd have to go in with a a, a bit editor to try and fix up the problem good enough to get that disk running again so that you could actually say, uh, now that you did go and get that new floppy disk I asked you to buy. (laughs) Yes. Oh, absolutely. I said, do not use this again. Do, there is no, take the data off. Yeah. And don't you, yeah, and don't consider it your backup. It's guaranteed that it will fail again. No, no, it, it is rubbish. Yes. <laughs> but, yeah. And um, you've got to remember that, I mean, even when CDs came in, uh, I remember the very first CDs I used were $20 a piece. Mm. Um, and, and, the chance of you making an error, and the floppies weren't that far different in many ways. If you made a lot of errors, and as I was a programmer, I made a lot of errors, you could get into a, a lot of money going through these materials. So verbatim earned a lot of money off me. Um, the CD manufacturer, I don't know who, know who it was, but they knew who I was. <laughs> so... It was um, quite, it, and I can understand why many schools and other businesses wouldn't use computers. It was quite an, remember, $5,000 would buy you an Apple II. That's, you know, nowadays if you put spent $5,000, you're buying an absolutely top of the line machine. Mm. So, and $5,000 today is not $5,000 in 1980. Well, you could actually get a, 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 a you could get a new car and change for five thousand dollars. Yeah, I, re- I remember the when I saw the first laser printer. Yeah, I saw the first laser printers come out, and you know they were no change from ten thousand. One thing that is not known very much, I owned my first Apple II. It was about nineteen eighty eight or nine. Until then, I always used Apple IIs. <laughs> it was either teaching really? Apple II. Yes. Yeah. And in wow. fact, okay. in fact, one of the things I've never ever admitted really was that in the first game I wrote, it may have been written on a school's Apple II. And if it was written on that school's Apple II, that might have violated their tax-exempt status. <laughs> what was that game, Roger? <laughs> that was um, Conflict, which I, I completely produced myself. Um, a student had walked past while I was writing a game for the Apple user group and he just said, you should publish that. I said, yes, that seems a good idea. I then went ahead and published it, uh, not knowing the first thing about publishing. By the time I'd actually published it, I knew quite a bit. I knew nothing about selling a game. I remember posing myself a question. If you sold something for $100, how much does the retailer get? How much does it cost to ship that around? How much will you get? In other words, a percentage. I, I, it was a black hole. I had no idea. So that's a decent segue into the next question. Uh, as a kid, I, I was programming in AppleSoft Basic. I didn't know assembler. I, I didn't know anything about 6502 machine code, assembler, etc. Uh, I didn't know how to learn it either. How did you first learn 6502 assembler? Roger. How I learned all my languages. Basically, I started out with Fortran, which you, you may remember. Oh, yay! That was a, that was my that, again. That was my first language as well. 
<laughs> Lovely language. May I never go back to it. <laughs> and uh, then I moved to basic because basic seemed to be the the language that all microcomputers of the Apple II type were using. The only reason I shifted from basic, uh, my first game was a 13K basic program. So uh, basically, I thought, <laughs> basically, okay, I, ma I made that game um, and I managed to sell a few copies of it. Um, really, it, it was never going to make the money back for me. It cost about $1,000 in those days to make the game. And there was no chance that I was ever going to get that $1,000 back, no matter how many I sold. But I sent 14 copies to the US, uh, to both magazines and distributors. And a short while later, SSI contacted me and said, look, it's a very small game, but we'd like to include it with another small game and make a dual pack for release. Uh, I just immediately agreed. I didn't, even care. <laughs> I didn't even care what the contract said. I just said, yes, I agree. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> and, uh, and then the second decision was, I'm going to give up teaching uh, because at that stage, I'd wanted the school to, to give me a computer class for a year. They had really reneged on that promise. They really weren't keen to, te to have me teaching computing. And their main argument was that if I left, who would they get to teach it? Which is a legitimate argument. But it was one I was never going to get over. So I actually left my, my very good teaching job and entered into a world where I had no idea what was going to happen. To continue, if you wish, <laughs> I, I then moved to, to I, I thought, look, I've got to learn about this. I can't. This idea of a black hole, you suddenly realise you know nothing. Okay? The acknowledgement that you know nothing tells you what you must do. I have learned every single language by just learning it myself, just finding out as much information as I can and doing it. Don't, don't worry about how, just do it. Mm. That's, pretty, that's pretty much the way I've learned mine as well. Yeah. So I actually arranged to go to SSI and Silicon Valley to meet them, and I stayed there for three months. Uh, once they invited me, I said, yes, I'll, I'll stay, <laughs> and stay there for three months. Um, I stayed with one of the gentlemen who ran at SS, worked at SSI. I, I then wrote a 96K basic program, um, and I worked basically from 10 o'clock in the morning. I would arrive there. I'd work till 10 p.m. that night, and I'd work seven days a week. Roger, I'm assuming these games were compiled, though, using a basic compiler? Uh, they, the, they ran on basic, the Apple Basic. The first two games I wrote ran on Apple Basic. But, and they were fun. The second game particularly, I thought was still, it's still a very good game. But it, you, you want to go further. And how, you know, I'd reach at 96K, I was streaming stuff into the machine as it was running. And that's not something to do on Apple too. That means the disc has to be working all the time. Uh, it takes time to get material to data in and out. So I just said like, Right, uh, I'm not going to write any more programs in BASIC. I made that commitment, and I've kept that commitment to this day. <laughs> I have never actually written a game in program or written a program in BASIC till now. 
well, even now. So the only choice I had was to go to 6502 machine code. Um, I knew a couple of my students had done it. Um, I was their teacher. Therefore, I had to be able to do it. <laughs> I used that as the initiative to go in. And within a, it was only about one month or two months' work, and I could write programs on 6502. Um, I then mapped out every byte of memory in the Apple II, and I had these sheets, which were the memory mapping sheets, and I would put down in them where everything would go. Um, and in the, and with this third game, I was loading off a, a DOS disk. In the fourth game, I'd rewritten the operating system as well so that I could actually load faster and do exactly what I wanted. Uh, this goes down to Wozniak. He, his code was so readable. It, he, it was elegant. Uh, he is a, a, an astute individual. And in how he would go to a party when, uh, or in the early days with an Apple II or Apple I, sorry, Apple I, and he would actually type in the operating system to show people what it could do. He just had an ability which goes beyond anything I, I've ever known in the industry. He could remember everything. Um, he could do fantastic materials uh, with, with what he had. But um, I actually managed to get machine language written, and my third game went so much faster, and I could then start concentrating on AI, which, which is what I really wanted to do. Because I could get the memory down, and the speed up, I could then concentrate on getting the program to be well, to, to be AI, basically, to be intelligent and to give people a very good game. Yeah, that was basically the sort of uh, game that I was looking for at that stage, um, not only because I was doing my own programming and my 6502 was basically limited to uh, time-critical um, routines that were just taking too long to run in basic. I would uh, have that as a machine uh, language routine, load it, call it, then just drop back into the, the basic to keep going because it was a quick, the quick way of for me to 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 get what I needed uh, written. But as you said, it, it's the AI sort of increasing the the feedback from the program and at the same time to be increasing the turnaround, the, the, the look and feel of the game. Now, I used to love uh, playing a game called Computer Ambush and we would set that up running in the back of the computer lab. <laughs> we, would do, we would do our turns in the morning we would go away. Someone would just go up at lunchtime. One hour turns. Yeah, or, or longer because we were basically playing max characters on each side. Someone would go up at lunchtime to make sure the computer hadn't fallen over. And then we would come back in the afternoon to actually um, play back because you could actually then step through the, you know, where your covering fire was, your movement. And, uh, you know, it was very heartbreaking to select several steps into your turn to suddenly find the sniper has picked you off. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, that's the sort of thing where it was such a great game to play if you could s spare that time for it. But then the type of game that you're talking about came out and uh, basically that kind of swept that kind of thing away because it was 
near real time. Um, you were getting a computer opponent that actually made sensible choices, sort of, not, and and not overly predictable. That was the best part about it. Was you know, you know, worst part was spending all that money to buy a game that came in from the US, and we're talking about an exchange rate that makes today's exchange rate look generous, and you go, well, that was an exciting couple of days. What are we going to do now? Uh, it, it just got so predictable. But, uh, yeah, no, for me, 6502 machine language was basically a way of just getting through the, the slow, um, you know, wading through uh, chest-deep water in the surf, and uh, the machine language basically then got me back up uh, where I wanted to be, and then it was basically programming, basic programming the rest of the way in, so... Okay, well, let's move on to... Actually, I've got one more question about um, 6502 assembly language. Uh, how did you guys do it? What tools were you using? Uh, okay, well, mine, I will do mine because mine was mine will obviously be the simpler one. Uh, I actually dropped into Hex on the machine to use the uh, monitor of the machine and I typed it in uh, from my crib notes that I had written down on um, A4 paper. Uh, so I basically programmed straight in at the monitor and then just be saved the routine back to the floppy disk. Uh, I'm sure that uh, Roger um, may have started off that way, but may have ended up with slightly more elegant um, methods. Yes, the I had a compiler. Uh, I forget the name of the compiler now, although it may even be on one of my floppy disk backups. Um, the uh, I also had a 10 megabyte drive uh, fairly early on. I was at Apple at one stage and I had a couple of engineers next to me and um, they were just talking amongst themselves. I was just overhearing what they were saying. Uh, and he was, they were actually saying that their, their, their one gigabyte drive on the Apple II was having a few problems. And I had to go away to somebody and just ask them, what was a gigabyte? <laughs> I, I just couldn't, I mean, I understood megabytes, but this, uh, what were they talking about? This this was in the early 80s. You probably understood the, the prefix giga, uh, and you knew what a byte was, but what the hell are those two <laughs> words doing together in one sentence? That, that's right. It's inconceivable. Inconceivable. That's right. And to think that these, yeah, well, they basically had the world at their fingertips mm. and could do whatever they wanted to. So if you think about a 10, 10 megabyte machine, they could just have any number of those hooked up in some way and they would then make a gigabyte and that would be a, an adventure for them <laughs> and they would be allowed to do it. Basically, in Apple in those days, if you wanted to do something, people would just say, right, do it um, and see what happened. Um, but uh, it, was, it was an amusing period. The... You, uh, I had to go to the States often because particularly in areas like AI, uh, there's no, there was no such thing as a system. Like now I tell my sister, my students, you go to A-Star, do the movement system. Uh, there are heuristic, heuristic mechanisms you can use to determine what's going on. And a lot of it, just get the, yeah, just get it off Google and then map it into what you're doing. In those days, there was zero. So I would go to meetings in America with other people in my 
zone and we would talk amongst each other to say, what are you doing? How are you doing it? What are your problems? How do you address these problems? So I met individuals like Will Wright, for example. I met Will Wright one day when he was actually explaining to me he was trying to sell his game. Uh, we were sitting down, there was Ann Trout, myself, and him at a table having coffee. And distributors wouldn't buy his game because you couldn't win. But he didn't want to win. He just wanted to play his game, and he would not change it. He literally just said, if I can't play it, I'm not going to sell it. I'll do something else, basically. And then eventually, the distributor said, uh, that put it out. They, they were reluctant, but we'll give it a go. And then SimCity was then put out um, <laughs> the next year. <laughs> uh, he was a god. Uh, it was hard to talk to him. So the, the, the changes were that dramatic. I mean, you get a person who is so committed and you can see the initial workings of that person's mind of what they're trying to, to do, how they're going about it. I received a lot of information and most of my information about how to set up my AI structures, strategic structures uh, from individuals in America. Uh, that's something I didn't have to worry about with uh, my programs. But, uh, yeah, I distinctly remember people asking me, how do you win SimCity? And it was an interesting experience explaining the, the, the difference to them. <laughs> and you try with distributors. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on to the next question then. Uh, many Apple users remember Computerland in Sydney fondly. Uh, do you... Do either of you actually have interesting computer land stories? Okay. It was part of my, my growing up phase in the, in the Apple II world. Um, the machine I purchased, the first machine and later machines I purchased for my school were through computer land. Uh, and I believe I was the first in Sydney to have, a, um, to have an Apple II in a school. Um, and Rudy Hess, the, the manager at that time, uh, I got along with very well, and I loved his enthusiasm for all these new things, uh, and that enthusiasm was contagious. Um, it also was the place where the Apple user group was formed. Uh, so in 1978, uh, myself, Peter Webster, Neil Bennett, and Bill Hood formed the Apple user group. Um, so the uh, essentially, it was, a, it was like... A coffee shop, essentially, for nerds. You would go there with the sole purpose of meeting individuals and just talking to them about what you could possibly do with all this new equipment. Um, then you got to the point of well, how you're going to buy it, but that was a different matter. <laughs> but it was just the... the it's hard to describe the, um, the environment that was there at that time. Uh, it just swept you along and really was a wonderful time of my life. Mm. Now, I didn't go to the Computerland uh, store in Sydney, uh, but I did go to the one in Brisbane. It was part of almost like a twice-weekly circuit. You'd go to Computerland. At uh, this stage, I'd left computers and peripherals, and I was actually working for an uh, insurance company. 
Uh, so you go to computer land, you, again, as you said, you'd meet up with uh, other like-minded individuals. Um, what's going on? What are you doing? And what's new in the software world? And then invariably, we would then go to various bookstores. Um, some of our younger readers, that's, um, that's the, the analog version of eBooks. Uh, and you'd see if any new uh, books had come in, uh, what titles did they have um, on programming, um, various aspects of programming. And uh, we got to the stage where you know, you'd walk in and the uh, proprietor behind the desk would say, please thumb, th thumb through the books carefully. We don't want them uh, left with any um, marks on them, otherwise people won't buy them. Yeah, they knew they couldn't get rid of us, but uh, they wanted us to be careful with the books. <laughs> But yeah, it was all part of a circuit. And, and I just really, um, the same thing when I was working at computers and peripherals, you'd have people come in and you'd, you would discuss things. And every now and again, you'd actually turn a sale out of it as well. Um, but most of the time, um, I was having people come in and they were wanting to get programmable calculators because we actually had the um, concession for selling the programmable calculators into the state government uh, public service. So anything that wasn't a basic calculator um, was uh, through us. So you had people come in for a calculator and they'd have their purchase order and whatnot for, from the uh, public service. And then you'd talk to them about these computer things. And uh, so when I started going up to computer land after leaving there, I was on the other way around. So, you know, I was talking to uh, other potential customers, other the staff there. And it was just a great social experience. And really, you know, we it was the internet cafe of the time, uh, minus the coffee, minus the internet. <laughs> Agreed. Okay, so uh, let's move on to the next question. Tell us about, uh, I think this one's mainly for you, Roger. Tell us about the International Apple Core and the Australian Apple Users Group. The, um, the Apple User Group was a, a very interesting bunch of individuals who um, we were all involved in Apple IIs, obviously, uh, in different areas, uh, very different areas. We had one individual who just loved doing the magazine applications for the Apple User Group. Uh, and he just basically said, just leave him for that. And he didn't want to deal with anything else. <laughs> so we did. And he was very happy to come up with the magazine and we just supplied him material. Uh, and he was a, a very reliable individual in that respect. Uh, we had a treasurer, Peter Kazakos, who then went on to uh, become a, a quite famous individual in the IT industry. Um, and uh, there were others. Uh, Neil Bennett uh, was one of the members of that time. And uh, he and I used to, to talk quite a bit. And he ran the Australian arm of a thing called the International Apple Corps, or the IAC. Uh, in 1981, um, I actually became uh, the uh, president of the Apple News Group. This is a bit of an interesting area of my life. And I became very aware of copying of commercial software that was actually going on in those meetings. Um, I tried to stop it and essentially realised that when I couldn't stop it, I was going to be, I could be held responsible for that copying. So if any business out there wanted to, they could hold me personally liable for copying that the group was doing. So I wanted the group to stop this. Basically, the group said, no, it wasn't. So I then resigned 
and a good number of the people on the committee who could also be responsible resigned as well. Um, there was a re-election that took place to deal with these issues and very shortly thereafter uh, a constitution which had never occurred till then came about and made copyright within the system uh, a very important issue and it stopped the copying within that environment at all. Um, at that stage, Neil Bennett was talking to me about how the uh, I actually stayed on, but not I never again joined the committee of that group. Um, but I stayed on and used to submit material for the for the magazine and give talks, and uh, I was an active member of the group. But I found that that particular issue had caused me a great deal of harm, I suppose. Um, I was also getting very busy and what the other activities that I was doing. But Neil Bennett did know that uh, I was very interested in what he was doing and he was going to go to the US to join the US um, IT industry. So he would like, would like me to take over the IAC in his absence. It was a case of looking after the Apple News groups in Australia because we weren't the only one. Um, and to contact the uh, the group in America, which was the main group, and to talk to them occasionally about what was going on. I agreed with this. Uh, he then left at the end of 1981 uh, and went to America. Um, at the very end of 1981, I actually went over to spend time at SSI, writing my second game. And the IAC actually knew that I was there we communicated occasionally and invited me to a meeting in Las Vegas. So I flew down there, very weary. I'd never really been involved in this sort of activity before. And in wandering around the hotel, I found these individuals that looked very nerdish and not like the sort of people you meet in Las Vegas at all. I spoke to one of them and yes, they were from the IAC and immediately got had a cup of coffee and got to know them. Um, and it was a very interesting time. They were a great group of individuals. And during one of the meetings there, I passed a motion that all directors should attend all meetings. And everyone agreed that that should be the case. That got me four trips to America a year. Uh, and it was very off. It, it came to the point where in Australia, no one wanted the IA to be the IAC director. After that time, a large number of people wanted to be the IAC director. And in fact, they, they challenged me constantly uh, to, to try and get that spot. What they didn't do, and this is the, the reason why I stayed there, I knew all the groups in Australia. In fact, I knew many of the groups in America as well. I had talked to all of the, the people that were running those groups. I knew or I directed them in, in their problems. I had helped them out in various activities. They all could vote for me to be the director. To anyone to challenge me would have to have gone to those groups and to convince them the fact that they were better than I was going to be. Um, most individuals that challenged me never actually informed anyone else in Australia that they were going to take that position. Uh, and I always had the, I sometimes had the Apple user group in Sydney would not vote for me, but all the other groups would. And I just continued to win very 
easily. The International Apple Corps actually went on and published a magazine called The Apple Orchard. This was at a time when magazines sold a great number of copies. And if you put Apple on it, it sold a lot more than any other. We essentially made so much money out of that magazine that the flying to America every year, it was literally nothing. Um, if we were at a meeting uh, at Chicago, for example, uh, one director from the Chicago area would be told, go and find a restaurant, make sure it's good. <laughs> we'll eat there tonight. Because essentially we could, you know, we could spend money in those sort of areas and then we had to look at ways to distribute money to groups, to, to allocate everything. Uh, it was a very, very interesting time because things were going well. Uh, later, when the magazine market started to collapse, the IAC also collapsed. Uh, and that was because it had debts incurred upon it, which were not its own fault. Uh, and basically a distributor that was handling the Apple Orchard at that stage went bankrupt and the the, uh, they owed the IAC a lot of money and that meant all the distributors would have to put that money in and we literally did not have the money to put in. It was that much money involved in this activity. Uh, so someone actually took it over, uh, but then it didn't really last a lot longer after that either because uh, the, it really was running. The magazine market had reached its time and it was a, I think at that stage was the very start of the internet and people were switching across the internet to get any information they wanted. So that, that sort of describes what, you know, the I, but during that period, four times a year, magnificent meetings. Um, I'd have to fly to Boston, for example, spend a, a, a weekend at Boston, you know, a few days in Boston, and then fly back again. Um, I also made it a case where if I was going to a city, I'd find out if there was a gaming um, company there. So I, I, I remember going to Dallas once and going up to see the guys that made Age of Empires. Um, I was in Boston, so I went to see Impressions. Uh, if I was in San Francisco, I could see a number of people. Uh, I'd met the guys at Brodebund uh, very early on. And later, when we were... Oh, well, it's very interesting, really, because later on we wanted a company to distribute warlords for us. Uh, and uh, and we really didn't know who in America would do this. We'd earlier, try, we'd already, earlier been tr distributing through uh, EA, because Trip Hawkins I'd met when I was uh, working at SSI. He was actually a director of SSI, and he had set up Electronic Arts. So when we wanted to distribute something in America, we basically gave Trip Hawkins a call, and he decided that, yes, he would distribute our games. We'd make them in Australia, send them to America, and he would then distribute them from America, through America. Uh, that, that period has sort of gone through and we didn't want to make games in Australia anymore. It was, was not the way to do it. We wanted the American distributor to make the games and to sell them. Uh, and at that stage, we started looking around. 
the Broderman guys came to us and said they would be very interested. That they, they, they'd actually had a magnificent uh, success with where in the world is Carmen San Diego and a few others. We felt they were the ones to very go. Very good with. game that one too. Oh, it was, but that was also designed by the guys that ran Broderbund. Uh, well, they were part of the design team. Uh, I used to go to Broderbund, and occasionally they'd ask me to go into design sessions, which was a, a wonderful experience. Um, they had on an Apple II, they had a morphing program which would morph a shape into another shape. And you looked at this thing, uh, basically, I looked at it and said it would never sell. <laughs> but you're looking at the very, the very start of the way that 3D shapes now merge and morph into other 3D shapes. Can you remember what that was called, Roger? No, that, that was never called anything. Right, okay. Um, the, I had a problem because they would actually give me games that were, they were going to publish or they'd give me material. They had print shop and they had other things that they had. They'd give me copies of this. And I'd then have to bring it into Australia and they would say, how much is this program? I, I had no idea. It wasn't on sale. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I found that answering, answering custom questions just was an art as opposed to a science. Uh, you had to give them an answer which was believable, but really I had no idea whether I was being honest or not. I, I just, there, there was no answer. They, they literally wrote under that stage, for example, did not know. Um, and other people that were doing games, yeah, they, they hadn't worked that out yet. Uh, so when I was bringing games to Australia, it was, it was, yeah, curious. Okay, Michael, did you have anything to add to that on the Apple User Group? No, uh, the well for me, the Apple User Group was something that was just on my periphery because uh, I suppose I'd had some bad experiences, so I just re of uh, computer user groups, so I basically just uh, kept aw away from it. Um, it was also uh, when the user groups were at their strongest, um, uh, I, I really had not really got so firmly into uh, programming. Um, I was just happy in my own little world, but uh, I was aware of them. I was actually aware of uh, Roger and uh, the others. Um, but uh, even 16, 17-year-old me, I basically uh, held them as gods. Um, <laughs> and, and it was just something that, yeah, it was just something which, you know, I sort of like, oh, I'm just a hack programmer. Um, I'll just uh, do my stuff for uh, the university or uh, other uh, what whoever's wanting me to give me the specifications. I've, I've priced it. I'll, I'll take my $500 and uh, say thank you. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it was a world which I, I, I suppose I didn't even really um, test. Now, which, which I suppose is a shame because I, I, I had written – uh, utilities for friends for tabletop gaming and board gaming and just to sort of like make things better. You know, they were you know, just short of game concepts themselves, you know, if, you know just something in there. But uh, uh, user groups were just something which I really didn't get into. But I was interested in how you were talking about um, bringing back into Australia um, games from Broderbrun that uh, – I gather at that stage they hadn't been released and uh, um, 
I suppose it was still in that era where if if it looked like it was a professional boxed package or something along those lines, it, it must have been something that you bought or acquired. It must have value as opposed to today where we're just so content and so blasé about flicking back um, gigabyte files. Uh, you know, someone could be doing something in the US and the person who's going to approve it is over uh, in in Sydney and you're waiting for input from someone over in London. And it, it's just... We're just so blasé about it. But uh, back then, it was a case of you needed to have physical objects. You needed to so like get them in front of people so that uh, they could actually look at it, evaluate it, consider it uh, for what they're going to do. Uh, and uh, it was at that stage where I know that in some cases you'd go through uh, you know, three, four, half a dozen iterations of packaging. Um, to just get it right um, otherwise it was destined to end up just yeah. otherwise it was just going to be destined to end up as a clip lock baggie i think because we're getting on an hour now uh, i'll probably just ask one or two more questions i have a ton of questions but i don't want to keep you guys for ages what are some cool stories about john draper was and the like yes well john draper whose uh, uh, alias was captain crunch he became famous uh, when he discovered that the device given away in cereal boxes could fool the US phone system and allowed you to ring anywhere for free. And it meant it stimulated a large number of individuals to come up with devices that made it easier and also made it him much more infamous. So I was in a car with him as we were heading down to the San Francisco Apple user group one day, or one night actually, um, and he was asking very technical questions of the driver who was quite a, a serious member of the communications industry. Uh, this went on for at least a, a good hour. Um, the discussion was really between him and the driver, um, who was a director of the IAC. Um, at the Apple User Group meeting, uh, the director actually asked me who this gentleman was that had such interesting questions. And I told him who it was and he literally turned white <laughs> uh, when he realised what he had actually said. Uh, Wozniak was really interesting. Uh, he, he was a man who loved devices, loved, uh, loved just playing with things. Uh, and when he was at college, he developed a little device which would disrupt, disrupt a TV signal. So if you just had it around a TV and you set it going, the TV would just suddenly go uh, screwy. Just everything would be go messy. So he entered the TV room one night because in colleges in those days, it was generally a TV room and everyone would go there to watch TV. And shortly after his arrival, the TV started acting up. So a student eventually went up and walked up to the TV and hit it at the top. And as soon as he hit it, it was fine. It, it went perfect. And he went back and sat down. And a short time later, it started to act up again. And another student came up and banged it a couple of times. <laughs> and it, it went right then. And he went away and sat <laughs> down. Now, the objective here, and he succeeded in the objective, was to have a student standing on a chair, holding a TV aerial at arm's length above his head, or the TV would act up. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> he, I suppose, this, you could say, yeah, right. If you've got a correct sense of humour, <laughs> this makes a lot of sense. But yeah, I, he really loved doing it. Uh, another one was when he was with Jobs and they were on a road one night and the police pulled over and asked them what they were doing and they looked very suspicious. So the police actually invited them to join them in the car, which they then did. When, if anyone knows about American police, you do what they ask. One wanted to know what the device that was had was, and he grabbed it and started playing with it, and he found that if you push the buttons, it made various sounds and beeps and buzzes and so forth. And he asked, was, well, what actually was it? So was immediately answered that it was a sound to the size that he was developing. And the cop just said, it's never going to sell. And basically, they, they shortly thereafter, they let out of the car because the police could find nothing that they were doing was wrong. And they got out of the car breathing very heavily indeed and put that phone device away, <laughs> um, which they were working on. Um, well, at least he was. Yeah, yeah, at least he was truthful to the police officer. It was a sound synthesizer. Um, luckily, in very much the way of people at wear back then, you had certain individuals who knew a lot about what was going on, mm-hmm. and then an awful lot of people who knew absolutely nothing. So during the early eighties, uh, right, th- actually, right throughout the eighties. I carried a suitcase with me with a big Apple symbol on it. And in all the flights I had and everywhere I traveled, no one knew what it meant. And I I sort of look back to those days and think that if you were to do that now, everyone would know that you're carrying an Apple device or you're carrying something to do with Apple. But back then, it it wasn't a recognizable symbol. Uh, And because I was a member of the IAC, because I was an Apple user group, member um i'd spoken to all the upper music well many of the upper music groups across america i'd spoken at schools throughout america um they i was always on call basically and if i was in that area i would i would look people up and uh, and arrange that yeah i could give a talk about what things were like how things were going internationally and uh, information was shared by people arriving and telling you things. There was no other way to find out. And I found in America, they wanted to know. And this was schools wanted to know things. User groups wanted to know things. And if you came to Australia, much less so. Um, I found, and being, because of my name, did become fairly well known out there, If I was in America, I went to a party once. I remember this quite clearly. This was very early in the 80s. And a gentleman came up to me and just grabbed my hand and started shaking it, patted me across the back and said, fantastic, you're you're publishing it. And I said, well, yes, yes, I I am. And he was just so happy and enthusiastic. And I said, oh, you're into games, are you? He said, no. (laughs) Um, you, (laughs) You actually know what I do. Uh, no, I don't know what you do. <laughs> what? Just this enthusiasm because I was doing something, whatever it was that I was doing. 
And that enthusiasm in America is quite common, whereas in Australia, uh, it really, in my opinion, does not exist, even today. Uh, and you could be, for example, someone here which is, who is quite famous, but you can really walk around everywhere and no one's going to pay you much attention. You have to be extremely famous for people to know who you are, uh, generally a, an actor of some description. Um, but if you, for example, are a, uh, a multi-millionaire in the IT industry, uh, yeah, about 10 or 15 people in Australia might know who you are. So it is a, it's still a case where getting known in America, very easy. In Australia, it is still quite hard. Really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. The, the relative anonymity is a good thing, though, I think. Yeah, that, that quite mirrors my experience. Yeah, that mirrors my experience um, in the electronic documents um, side of things, that uh, recognition is difficult at times here in Australia. And once the novelty of the Australian knows something um, gets passed when you're in the US. And so like the, the so like their first thing they're, they're, they're enthusiastic because you're Australian, then they're enthusiastic because you actually uh, know stuff, you're teaching them stuff, you're, you're helping them. And uh, you know, you get your recognition uh, built up that way. But uh, you then sort of like still come back to Australia and uh, slide back into the uh, being that anonymous guy. Okay, well, fantastic conversation. Thank you, Michael Mulhern and Roger Keating. Thank you very much. No problem. Thank you. The mystery object is the Apple Lisa, a product way ahead of its time, particularly when you consider development of the Lisa began in 1978. Okay, thanks so much for listening. Please help us with the GoFundMe if you can. We're funding this ourselves, and it ain't cheap. Please email us at podcast at acms.org.au if you've any questions, corrections, or suggestions. Ciao. If you like this podcast, or if you want to support the preservation of Australian computing history, donate monthly and make a difference by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash acms. We also accept one-off donations, please go to acms.org.au and click Donate Now. This has been... Okay.